Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I am Amy Gunn, and today I am joined by Elizabeth McNulty and Liz Lenevy. Hello, ladies. Hello. Hi. We are going to be talking about consumer legal funding today, also known as lawsuit loans. The reason I thought this could be an interesting topic is because Missouri, uh, on August 28, 2023, uh, a new law went into effect entitled the Consumer Legal Funding Act, and it is section 436.550 through 436.572 of the Missouri Revised Statutes. These are new laws for Missouri as opposed to just amendments to other laws. And so prior to now, we have not had a law in place that regulates or helps us understand the circumstances under which lawsuit loans are legal and ethical. We have, however, had a legal concept called champerty. I know y'all are looking at me like, you don't even remember that from law school? So champerty is uh, an agreement under which a stranger to a lawsuit can agree to assist in the prosecution or defense in exchange for some of the proceeds. We also have an issue because if the transaction is Champertus, yes, that's a word, <laughs> champertus. It's not permissible for an attorney to be involved. And so I have dealt with clients who have wanted, quote, lawsuit loans for a number of years, and I've always understood that they were ethical based on a couple of key criteria. Number one, that they're non-recourse. In other words, the lawsuit loan has to be made by a third-party company, and the payment and the repayment can only be from the lawsuit if it's successful. So in other words, the lawsuit loan company cannot go after the plaintiff uh, through any other means. If there is funding at the end of the lawsuit, then as an attorney, we can pay the lawsuit loan company back. But if we lose the lawsuit, or there's not enough money left after attorney's fees and expenses to repay the loan, then the loan company is out of luck. So that is one that is one of the criteria. The other criteria, as I understood it up to this point, was that the lawsuit loan cannot be used to fund the lawsuit. So my client can't take out a loan to fund the lawsuit. That's my job we cannot ethically loan money to clients for any reason. And so it sort of follows along that the the loan company cannot issue the loan for the lawsuit. It's just sort of an end run to that same end. So I have begrudgingly over the years, after a lot of information provided to the client about how that lawsuit loan is going to increase over the years, have done it under very few circumstances and also will not agree to any particular language in a lawsuit loan that I will do anything as the attorney other than agree to honor their lien pursuant to my client's wishes. And so, and it can pose problems at the end of the lawsuit because a $1,000 loan can double, triple, quadruple, depending on how 
much time goes by between the loan and uh, when the settlement funds are available. And that can sometimes get in the way. And I think we're going to have a few stories about that. But looking particularly at the Consumer Legal Funding Act, the new act in Missouri, it, it very clearly is legal for a licensed company to come in and loan money to plaintiffs in a lawsuit as long as it will be repaid from the settlement proceeds. It also regulates particular language that has to be in that contract. There are also a couple of provisions that are specific to a plaintiff's attorney or an attorney's duties in this situation. And they're pretty simple, though. 436.566 indicates that an attorney or a law firm retained by the consumer, who is the plaintiff, in a legal claim shall not have a financial interest in the consumer legal funding company. So you can understand that. That would be a conflict. So we can't own or have an interest in the legal funding company and then loan to our clients. One other interesting part of this statute is that it speaks to things like what's discoverable in the lawsuit. So 436.568 provides that no communication between the consumer's attorney, so that's us, in the legal claim and the consumer legal funding company, so that's the loan company, necessary to ascertain the status of the legal claim or a legal claim's expected value shall be discoverable by a party with whom the claim is filed or against whom the claim is filed. So in discovery, the defendant can't say, I want all the communications that your lawyer has had with this funding company. Then finally, the last little provision of the statute, 436.572, indicates that a consumer legal funding contract is a fact subject to the usual rules of discovery. So that's kind of an interesting one because it doesn't really say it's discoverable or not discoverable. It just calls it a fact. I guess if you can make a case that the contract is relevant, then you can get it in discovery. I'm not really sure what the what to do with that, but I guess it just makes the point to say that it could be discoverable under the right circumstances. Now that I would have argued up to this point is you don't get that. It's there's absolutely no relevance to that at all. But I guess we'll see if how that plays out if anybody notices it and if I haven't just brought attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to this act and since it's um very new, there aren't any cases on it, there are no ethical opinions on it. Um but I will say that as part of my role as the Missouri Association of Trial Attorneys uh, president, I did just send a letter to um, the Office of Disciplinary Counsel to ask for some thoughts on if they have any sort of informal advisory opinions about whether this act changes how we've done business in the past. And we'll see if there's any comment from that. But in the past, opinion this, I believe, is from 2005. The attorney was recently contacted by a finance company that advances funds to plaintiffs. The company only makes loans to people with pending personal injury or workers' compensation cases. The, the plaintiff is not required to repay the loan. The attorney is expected to disperse funds to the company directly from the attorney's trust account. So the question posed to the OCDC 
was the company claims that its loans are not champerty because they are not overtly supporting litigation. Can the attorney ethically get involved with this company? Um, and the answer was under Rule 4-1.8E, which is conflict of interest, prohibited transactions. An attorney may not provide financial assistance to a client. So, okay, we get that. That's sort of the thing we talked about a minute ago, about you can't loan money to a client. The answer goes on to say it is likely that an attorney's involvement with loans by this company would be considered champertous. Despite the fact that a client might not use the funds directly for litigation, it appears that the funds are intended to support litigation. If the transaction is champertous, it is not permitted for the attorney to be involved. So I think the key issue is if the money being loaned to the, if it's a non-recourse loan to the plaintiff and the plaintiff uses it for living life and it has nothing to do with funding the lawsuit, then it's ethical. I, the way I think this answer reads is they assumed it was going to be, those funds were going to be used to, quote, support litigation, therefore it becomes champertous and it is not ethical. So I've been thinking about this and I always send a letter that I ask my clients to countersign, sort of acknowledging that these loans are not favored, largely because they just, their interest rates are so high. But I think I'm going to include going forward some language about how it, it, the money cannot be used in any way to support the litigation. I mean, that's pretty self-evident, but it feels like that might be an important piece to add to that letter to make sure that it is not considered champertous. <laughs> so this would not apply, though, for example, if a plaintiff has mounting medical bills. I agree. Correct. Okay. I, if a loan is offered to a plaintiff and the intent is going to be for paying their medical bills, even though those medical bills were incurred right. as a result of what has caused this litigation, I do not believe that that would be considered, quote, supporting litigation. And I think the statute might actually have some definitions that maybe clarify this particular issue because that was my first thought was yeah obviously part of the contract we have with the client is that we put forth all of the expenses so hiring experts getting the records in taking the depositions all of the litigation related expenses and that comes back to us if we are successful on top of our fee the reason clients most often call me with these questions about lawsuit loans is oftentimes associated with medical bills. You know, I have this out-of-pocket expense or I'm uninsured. Yeah. How am I going to get treatment? They're threatening to send me to collections, things like that. Usually I tell them, well, you need to inform your healthcare provider you have an attorney. These communications should be coming to me so that we can try to figure that out together. But if you do need a lawsuit loan, well, what exactly can you use it for? And under... 436552, which is the definition section of this Consumer Legal Funding Act, 
looks like specifically subsection six. A consumer legal funding contract is defined as a non-recourse contractual transaction in which a consumer legal funding company purchases and a consumer assigns to the company a contingent right to receive an amount of the potential proceeds of a settlement, judgment, award, or verdict obtained in the consumer's legal claim, and this is the important part, so long as all of the following apply. A. The consumer at their sole discretion shall use the funds to address personal needs or household expenses. Now, what we, what defines personal needs, I don't think, is provided, but Subsection B then says the consumer shall not use the funds to pay for attorney's fees, legal filings, legal marketing, legal document preparation or drafting appeals, expert testimony, or other litigation-related expenses. So I'd say paying off medical bills is not included in that. I would agree with that interpretation. One thought that came to my mind now that we have this new statute is there are very specific rules and, again, language that has to be included in the contract. And that is under 436.554 called contract requirements. All consumer legal funding contracts shall meet the following requirements. And there's four sections. And it occurred to me, if there are companies doing business and they don't recognize that there's a brand new law in Missouri regarding legal funding, the contract that they have the client sign doesn't meet these requirements could be void because it doesn't meet those requirements, meaning I guess at the end of the day, they wouldn't, our clients wouldn't have to pay them back. We wouldn't have to pay them back. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, what is my obligation? Do I need to make sure I read that contract to make sure it conforms to this statute? That doesn't really appear to be my job. I don't really think that's my job to make sure that that company is following the law in Missouri. Because I have already told my client, I don't like this idea. I don't think it's in your best interest. But obviously, if you're if you really want this and and you're telling me to pay them back out of the proceeds, if there is any, then I'll follow your direction. But I'm sort of also wondering, do I need to make sure that things that they're signing are actually valid? (laughs) Elizabeth, you look like you're. You've got an answer to that. Well, I don't think that you would have a duty to the, and you have a duty to your client, but it would also be, I guess, in your client's best interest to be signing a contract that isn't binding such that they don't have to pay the money back. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that you would have to check to make sure. I mean, I think the onus is on whoever is drafting the, the contracts for these funding companies. I surely they're aware of this. I would hope. But there are a lot of companies out yeah. there. I I think that makes sense to me. I also worry that if I do undertake to read that contract and start editing it, that I'm somehow assenting to it or agreeing that it's a that it's the right thing for my client to do. So the most I ever do after I get my client to to acknowledge the risk going forward is they ask a a lawyer to sign to indicate that they will abide by paying the lien back from the trust, which I think is probably a reasonable thing to do. And I don't see any guidance on that ethically in our ethical opinions either. Something interesting, and maybe this is a silly question, but 
I mean, lawyers ask silly questions all the time, right? One of these contract requirements under 436.554, specifically if you jump to subsection, I think, 3, which is at the very end of this particular part of the statute, says a consumer legal funding contract shall be entered into only if the contract involves an existing legal claim in which the consumer is represented by an attorney. Okay, so what does an existing legal claim mean? So to that, we go to the definition section. Subsection 12 defines legal claim as a bona fide civil claim or cause of action. So does this mean the lawsuit needs to be on file already in order to get a lawsuit loan? Am I reading that wrong? I I don't know because, I mean, they inserted the word existing, but legal claim is the word that's defined. So to me, that means existing I don't, because I've had clients that have been approached with cases that aren't on file who have Mm -hmm. been approached by these companies to try to get loans. Well, I'm thinking of a case I had a while back ago where, disclosure, this was before the case came to our office, so this was with a prior attorney. The case wasn't on file. We never filed the case. We were able to successfully resolve it ahead of time, and this was before the statute went into effect. Obviously, this was a while back ago. The, there wasn't a lawsuit on on file yet that's what i'm wondering is is can a lawsuit loan be given pre-suit am i reading too far into this i think so because you can have a claim okay of action without ever filing so like an in well that's what i'm like is it an insurance claim is it a legal claim like what is it yeah well existing just means it's happened to you it doesn't mean that you've filed right yeah i think it just a legal claim exists. Civil, okay. When people walk in the door, a legal claim exists. We just investigated and initiated mm-hmm. legally. But it, I did look up bona fide because, you know, that's what lawyers do. We look up everything. And when you look at legal claim, the definition that you noted, it says a bona fide civil claim or cause of action. Bona fide just means real. It doesn't seem to define whether it's on file or not. So a real civil claim, an existing real civil claim. So there's a lot of cases, (laughs) though. I think with car accidents, that can be pretty easy. But we take a lot of cases where we investigate them, where we're, you know, with medical malpractice, for example. I probably have this conversation with potential clients on a weekly basis at this point where I say, yeah, I don't. I don't know if malpractice occurred based on the facts that you're telling me, but I think there's enough there for us to order the records. Let's give it to an expert. You don't have this conversation? Yeah, no, no. I I, I said, you know, I I tell them full disclosure. I'm not a doctor. Oh, yeah. And also I'm relying on whatever it is you're telling me over the phone person who also did not go to medical school. So I tell people, I don't know if you have a claim or not, but I think there's enough there to investigate. Let's find out. So let's play that out client gets a thousand dollar loan from a legal funding company which only gets paid back if you win Uh doesn't that define existing legal claim if you win i mean if you're worried about whether it's legitimate or frivolous or at the end of the day turns out the jury doesn't like our claim well the company's not going to get paid anyway because we lost sure but I'm focusing on the contract requirements. Okay. And it says a contract shall be entered into only if the contract involves an existing legal claim. Okay. And that's, I'm with you on like piecing this out because 
if it's not a real claim, if it turns out we look at it and it's not a good claim, then I could see where, well, it's, it wasn't an existing legal claim because it turned out it wasn't a good claim. That's your point. Yes. And, and could that, I mean, obviously they can't go back and, and try to, I don't know, maybe I'm just falling into a rabbit hole with these totally. exact, exactly that's these what contract requirements are. <laughs> but also, I mean, I, I just wanted to know, does this possibly keep clients from entering into these lawsuit loans pre-suit? Well, could that be an argument? You mean for us to tell the clients you can't do this yet? Just to think about. Okay. Or to have that conversation. I think that all of the risk is on the companies. Mm. The client doesn't have anything to lose, really, by the contracts being total crap. Because they get the money. They're the benefiter. And then it's the, the companies that need to make sure that the the contracts hold up so they're the ones that need to be concerned of like making sure that they make all these requirements and they're the ones that need to call us to make sure that there's a bona fide civil claim or cause of action that exists because if there isn't and they've already given out the money then they're just that's all right and that was kind of my thought is if they give out the money and it turns out it's not a good claim it's not a bona fide claim then they don't get their money back. I guess the client just gets got some money. Yeah, so maybe <laughs> right. so maybe we tell these people, heck yeah, try to get one. Even when we're in the investigation stage, if they're dumb enough to give it to you. Yeah. And I will say that the conversations I've had with some of these lawsuit lenders, they do ask really specific questions. I'm sure they've learned their lesson. Yeah. And the one I get most often is, you know, is this person going to need surgery? You know, are are more bills coming that could increase the value of the case such that it makes sense for us to to provide this loan to to your client? And I I mean, my answer every time is, yeah, that sounds like a question for their doctor. Yeah, I, I'm not qualified to diagnose this person or provide treatment, medical treatment to this person. So I don't know. And then I I mean, I just I try to be honest about what exactly I think the value of the case may be. Well. Up until now, I used the argument with the client of, you know, I really, I'm not comfortable helping you with this, and I don't want to tell the loan company anything about your case because mm-hmm. they could get deposed and have to tell um, the defense attorney everything that I told them because none of that is protected. But now with this new act, that argument is no longer going to work with the client because it's now not discoverable. Not just, uh- so just so I'm which getting, is good, but yeah. doesn't help you dissuade your client from not entering into one of these agreements. The conversation is not discoverable, right? But the contract, contract itself is. It could could be could, could be. be could could be. be okay. Well, um, that's about as clear as mud. Now one other <laughs> welcome to the law. I know. <laughs> and we think this is fun. <laughs> uh, one more thing: four thirty six five five eight is a provision entitled predetermined payment to the company amount limitation on length of contract term. So this says that no consumer legal funding contract shall be valid if its terms exceed a period of 48 months. No consumer legal funding contract shall be automatically renewed. Y'all, I've got especially mass tort cases that can last more than four years. And Really, that's, I don't know if it's just volume or th- something particular to mass torts, but most of the 
lawsuit lending that I have in my cases come from mass tort cases. So that might be a little loophole to worry about. Not, I guess not for us again, right? but for a company because there's no automatic renewal. So if they sign, if our clients sign, you know, a thousand dollar loan today and four years from now in 2027, that case is still going on, which is not unusual, unfortunately, in mass tort, I, I guess from the read of this, it's no longer valid. And that's part of the problem that I try to explain to my clients, especially in a mass tort, is it will take this many years. And that $1,000 becomes who knows what after four or five years. So that actually, I mean, I sort of appreciate that provision. We'll just have to see. I do think at this point it's incumbent upon us if these loans happen to our clients. At the end of the case, if there is apparently a payback to be made, we go back and look and say, well, you know, whoop, it's after four years. Go pound sand. Or, you know what, you didn't, you have one of these pro- prohibited acts under 436.556 that you engaged in. So it's it's void. And then I guess you then can expect some sort of litigation from that, from the lawsuit company. But I don't know. I just think it's going to be something to keep in mind, which is why we thought it might be a good topic for today. So does this mean then, if I'm reading this right, that the contract itself cannot exceed 48 months? So they can say, we can continue to charge you interest for up to 48 months. And at that point, if the litigation exceeds 48 months, then that's it's maxed out on what the loan repayment is. It doesn't invalidate the contract entirely as long as it stops after 48 months. Is that? I think that's a good question. Okay. No consumer legal funding contract shall be valid. Mm-hmm. And the part above it says the contract did amount to be paid to the consumer legal funding company shall be set as a predetermined amount based upon intervals of time from the funding date. So they have to provide yes. a time interval, and that time interval cannot exceed 48 months. Yes. Okay. So if the contract doesn't follow or doesn't set out payback provisions for a full 48 months, then this section is problematic for them. Mm-hmm. And it surely would have to have something, what happens after 48 months? If the case is still going on, 48 months goes by, I would ex- assume that the company would have to include some kind of provision that says, we will expect you to sign another one. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Or if the contract comes in and doesn't have terms that include, or, or doesn't have any terms, which means that it would exceed for it could exceed forty eight months. That's that makes it invalid. Mm-hmm. Or has terms that exceed forty eight months. That would make it invalid. So let's say it's a situation where the lending company has failed to follow the statute. And now we're settling the case or we've got a verdict and and they're coming to collect. It's been more than 48 months. Is it my responsibility as the attorney to, you know, the duty I owe to my client to go and fight this contract dispute now with this lending company? Or do I say someone else needs to to step in and do that? 
or can I go to the court and say, you know, at, ask the court to make a determination? That because that sounds messy and not like procedurally sort of, correct, right? Some sort of declaration. <laughs> but or, I mean, I'm kind of thinking. The only thing I can think about is, you know, with in Missouri specifically, there is a statute that allows us to ask the court to reduce or defer Medicaid liens, right? So that's a specific kind of lien that we can go to to the court and say, hey, can you can you reduce this? I don't think that there's any specific provision in here that gives the court power to to find these contracts invalid as far as the actual you know lawsuit goes the litigation that was the impetus for this this lawsuit loan goes so i'm just i'm, I'm wondering if i'm if i'm in this situation is it my responsibility to object to this or do i just need to alert my client like hey you don't have to pay for this and do they get sent to collections that's I don't know what the duty would be. I I can only imagine that the practice would include, I can see it now. Okay, I'll send a letter saying, based on this statute, this contract is invalid. Thank you very much. Stop calling me. Yeah. <laughs> All right? And like, I'll tell my client, I'll send that, and then I don't know what to do after that. Because I also, that's another, that's a very good point is where does, where does our contract with our client end? Because our contracts talk about we're going to litigate this claim on, from this accident on this date with these people involved. It does not exceed that. Now, we can voluntarily extend the scope, but that's probably not the greatest idea. Well, and that's why I would never want to sign one of these contracts with my client. Like, we're their agent anyway, so if they direct me to pay the money to one of these companies, then we have to do it anyway. But I would never be comfortable signing on as, like, acknowledging and agreeing to the terms that they're agreeing to, because I would really like to avoid being involved in it to the extent that I can. Yes, and that's definitely... But I've had companies that insist that I sign something. And so I mark through a whole bunch of stuff. I make it as benign as possible. My client has instructed me to do this. I get the client to sign off. Because then you've got the client on the other side saying, no, I can't pay my rent because of this accident. I'm not employed anymore. I have medical bills that I owe. I'm going to lose my home. I'm going to lose my car. And then we're in the position of, saying, well, I don't want to sign my name on this piece of paper. Sorry about your luck. Yeah. And then what happens? There are plenty of other lawyers who would certainly consider signing it and not worry as much, I guess. Um, so I, I think that is a difficult position, which is just another reason why n not many people like these situations, mm -hmm. <laughs> because it just it's a trick bag. Yeah. But I will say I'm really actually very pleased to see this law. I think it does give a little guidance, as I said at the top. This gives us some idea, something to look at, something to analyze, something to go down a rabbit hole about. And it also educates me, I think, to add a few things to our letters with our clients, including just continued warning of the risk, maybe even referencing the statute, alerting the clients that it does exist. And they might want to take a look at it and see if it conforms with what they're signing, those types of things. Might even be worth just including a copy of the statute right. into the letter. Yeah. 
not saying they have to read it, but they can. Yeah, that just <laughs> feels like I'm doing the best I can to educate the client on the rules that are in place in addition to just the straight up risk that's involved. In, but I mean, I, I guess I'm trying to put myself in that spot, which is a client in need. They see companies that are willing to give them a few thousand dollars without doing anything, literally just without, without owing anything, without doing anything. I get it within 24 hours. I mean, these companies are crazy fast about how soon you can get the money. And you're probably not thinking about what's going to happen two or three years from now when the case settles and the amount is has skyrocketed mm -hmm. but so I, I try to put myself in their position as well and when I look at it that way I do kind of feel compelled to help them and as long as I feel like I've done my job for them which is to explain the risk yeah that that's what I think we all have to do and I it starts in my opinion with a phone call I think that that needs to be an oral conversation before anything's in writing. So you can try to answer all of their questions. And in those conversations, I really emphasize how crazy these interest rates are. They're going to be, I think, blown away by them. It, they're just incredibly high. And people, I get it, people are desperate, especially a lot of the clients that we have, be, oftentimes because of the injury That's right. that they've suffered. But I do think it is our responsibility to have those in-depth conversations and then to put it into writing. So have the conversation over the phone or in person and then put it into writing. And, and I, I have the same feelings that you do, Amy, of you, you want to help these people. Ultimately, you want to help your client. You want to do what you can. The thing that I struggle with, though, is when we are getting close to, for example, settling oh, the case. Yep. Yep. We're at mediation. Here it is. And I have to explain, well, I know you, you may have taken $5,000 out, but now you owe back $10,000. You owe twice what you took out because of that interest rate. And so when we're running the numbers, because that's, that's what everyone wants to do in a mediation, is run the numbers of, well, how much am I going to get in my pocket after I pay you, I pay the expenses, I pay the, you know, if there's medical exactly. liens, how much am I going to get back? And I kind of struggle with where exactly do I put this lawsuit loan? I, I think I kind of got to put it into what you consider your net. I believe lawsuit loan has to come out just like any other lien. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the the statute for 36 564 subpart 3 says only attorney's liens related to the legal claim Medicare and other statutory liens related to the legal claim shall take priority over claims to proceeds from the consumer legal funding company. So it's very clear that I get paid my expenses get returned Medicare gets paid any other statutory liens which presumably would include Medicaid or private health care if they, you know, that's a big fight about whether that's a lien or a subrogation interest, but that's my own little fight. Uh, but, yeah, those are all things that the client needs to be aware of and should not be shocked about by the time the settlement comes around. And you hate to say I told you so, but I see it coming every time. And, you know, that $5,000 three years ago is, has come and gone probably largely forgotten about by the client by the time you get to trial or to settlement. And so it's very much incumbent upon us to advise the client 
just like we would, here's the attorney's fees, here are the expenses, here's the lawsuit loan, here's what Medicare might need back prior to even engaging in settlement. So thank you, ladies. I think even though this is maybe a dry topic, okay, it is something that comes up a lot in our practice. I thought it was definitely worth discussing this brand new statute in Missouri. I believe other states have laws relating to champerty, <laughs> my new favorite word. So I would encourage anybody listening who practices in other jurisdictions to obviously take a look at your ethical rules as well as your statutes to see what might apply. But thank you for listening to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. We drop episodes every Wednesday. We'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at heelsinthecourtroom.law. Thanks. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.